Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And this time we're going back to the dark side again. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> We've got another defense lawyer, a good friend of mine and a very good lawyer. We are today speaking with Charles Krugel, a management side labor and employment attorney and human resource counselor who's been running his own practice for more than two decades. Chuck is on several boards of directors and was appointed to Loyola University Chicago Quinlan School of Business's faculty. Chuck, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it, Max. I meet. It's good to have you. And Chuck, I'll share on a personal note, Chuck's been a really good friend and networking source for me. And in the interest of full disclosure, I guess I owe a lot of a lot of my career success to introductions and connections that Chuck has made for me. So, so your practice breaks about a third, a third, and a third. Yeah. What kind of counseling are so when you say you're doing HR work for companies, and I guess that would be the counseling sorts of yeah. things you're doing, what does that look like as an attorney versus an HR employee? It's a preventive and proactive HR. So basically I'm providing in similar, in some aspects, the same type of advice or counsel that an HR person might give, but I'm also including or throwing in the fact that I'm an attorney and have done this from A, meaning the arise of a dispute all the way through Z, meaning litigation and, you know, the post-litigation resolution. Does that perspective of having seen the full long road of a case starting and 10 years later, finally ending, does that help you then in terms of counseling companies? Yeah, it does. It's because it helps to prepare a person or the company for litigation. It helps get them, you know, kind of steeled or, or you know, sort of a desensitized to litigation and everything that goes on in litigation. You know, the fact that it's very invasive, you know, for a company to go through. So, yeah, it's, it's helpful. And it definitely gives a good perspective in terms of when, uh, negotiation, too, because I think a lot of attorneys end with negotiation and then they'll farm out the litigation part so you know it, it's it, it's sort of an uh, it gives another dynamic and also with the insurance companies too because they deal a lot with insurance companies and you know that adds a, a completely different dynamic to it so when you say you get them steeled to litigation is it just a case of hey i've seen this case before i've seen this scenario before here's how it's going to go here's what it's going to cost here's what you're looking at in terms of business disruption yeah, I kind of call it leadership. And I think that's a good way of the generic way of putting it is like that it's like leadership skills. Like basically they're hiring me not just to be a, you know, a, a pit bull litigator, if assuming that's what they want, but to also give them, you know, to explain this to them in plain English, what this all means. I'm a business owner and operator. So if I'm talking to a, a third party provider, a, a vendor, I want them to be able to explain to me you know, in plain English, what's what's going on, what services or, or products I'm shopping for them. And that's kind of like the way I look at client relations, that they want to hear from me, you know, not just this high food and legalese crap, but, you know, explain to us what this all means. Like, what is discovery? What is a deposition? What kind of questions can we expect? You know, what are we going to have to produce? You know, how can we be prevented from producing something and, and all that type of stuff? 
One of the things we've covered, we've had a couple of management side folks or kind of management adjacent side folks. Like, I don't know if you know Rachel Ablin, but she's a solo. Yeah. yeah so uh, maybe from Decalogue or, or, or that sort of thing. But Rachel does, you know, the investigation side. And one of the topics we, we touched on but didn't get too far into is being conflicted out. When you act as an investigator, you're doing the HR side of it. Have you ever seen that where you do the investigation? Maybe you have to terminate an employee's uh, employment yeah. or that sort of thing where you run into a conflict issue or somebody starts to try to get into documents that might otherwise be privileged? Yeah, years ago, actually, this came up with the EEOC in Chicago. So I had a client of mine who we did an investigation of such harassment and discrimination against one of the owners of the company. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. And we did an investigation and the employee refused to cooperate. She wanted her counsel with her, blah, blah, blah. So we ended up firing her. And she filed a complaint at the EEOC. And we actually, I deposed the, uh, so I did the investigation and actually was involved in the firing. And then we, I started doing the litigation and actually you know, deposed an investigator from the EEOC. And I wanted to go through with trial and all this. I was, you know, I talked, we talked with the judge. I forgot, I think it was Judge Hart. So this is many years ago in federal court. And, you know, they, I think the EEOC attorney was like 50-50 about letting me continue. But then, you know, so we were starting to get into motions and then my, my client declared bankruptcy. <laughs> so once that happened, that was it. I was yeah, going to say that is a way of cutting it short, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. So it was unfortunate. I was looking forward to it. I was looking forward to putting the EOC on trial and, and you know, that type of stuff. Cause I'd walk court for them when I was in law school. And so, you know, it'd been, but you know, that type of stuff happens. It's the same thing, like going against sometimes friends of mine who are attorneys, like, you know, I'm we're looking forward to, it, I'm joking with them about it. And then maybe something happens with the client or, you know, something, you know, blows up or whatever. So. So how often then are you counseling and also representing the company in the litigation? Is that rare? Yeah, it's pretty rare, maybe 10% of the time. And you alluded to this a moment ago too, and the three of us kind of know what, how this works, but if you can explain it a little bit, you mentioned insurance can sometimes play a role in these matters. Can you just talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So let me, let's start out with a big picture statement here. The pra- to me, the practice of law is kind of easy. It's the business development end of law that's the challenge. And dealing with insurance companies is a business development aspect of practicing law. So it's convincing the insurance company that I'm qualified and able to handle this because I might not be on their panel. Right. So years, and this is how it started. It started with a years ago for me, it started with a pro bono case. I was handling through law, through law project, Chicago Law Project, a Chicago Lawyers Committee under civil rights. And it mushroomed into a bigger case against the state of Illinois involving uh, DNO insurance, too. And another law firm wanted to get into this. And I thought to myself, and this was a much larger law firm, I thought to myself, you know, I'm like, I think I can handle this case under the insurance and all that. So it's just a matter of getting approved. And getting approved was so difficult that every time now I realize, you know, it's always the same process. Getting approved by the insurance company is more difficult than the case itself. And so it's basically going through the process of getting approved. And once I'm approved, it's usually okay. But I get approved maybe two thirds of the time. So it's that other one third of the time, you know, you get slapped in the face and it really stings. So it's, but to try to get approved, I mean, you're going, you're trying to explain to them 
all right, I have this relationship with a client. The client really wants me. The client calls up the broker and insurance company and says, I want Krugel to represent me. And it's like, well, no, we have our panel of attorneys and we also have like a, a reservation of a reserve clause for representation or something like that. It's called, we have the right to you know reserve the right to represent you and to choose the attorney. And so we'll go with our people, one of our panel firms. And I talked with other attorneys and insurance people about this. Generally speaking, you know, sometimes these panel firms, it's not like it's their panel because of the greatest firm. It's a cause, it's like a nepotism thing. Like, oh, my brother-in-law is a member of this firm. So we'll give him the business. So when you, know, you that say type of stuff. So when you say panel, I guess for the uninitiated, right? Like if you have, because I, I, I think we're talking about what we would call EPLI insurance, right, Chuck? Employment practices, liability insurance, or directors and officers, liability insurance is another one that it could come under. Yeah. Right. So for for folks who are unfamiliar, if a company has one of those types of coverages and they have their own outside attorney like yourself or somebody who's kind of functioning in a hybrid role, I guess is maybe a better way to call it for you. You're sort of functioning as in-house counsel, HR, and as outside counsel, depending on whatever goes on. They have a legal issue that comes up. They make a claim with their insurer. And in theory, they want you to represent them. And what you're describing is it's not always that simple. Sometimes you have to fight with the insurance company to get them to pony up to actually let you continue to represent your client. That's the toughest part of the case. So, you know, that's generally the toughest part of the case. So I've been able to get approved, but, you know, let me give you an example. More frequently over the last few years, my clients are actually law firms. I'm increasingly representing more law firms. So one of my clients is a mid-sized law firm, an international business law firm, and they get acclaimed against at the EOC by a former partner of theirs. Now, the former partner goes out and gets probably some people you know, and, and well, I know, and so to represent her. And it turns out that that firm also, they have like an insurance policy with a really good company, by the way. I guess I mentioned a company, Chubb. So they have a policy with Chubb because I have a lot of respect for Chubb and I like them. They actually used me on the state of Illinois case. That's the one they approved me for that one. So now what happens is since I already worked at one case, I was successful. My supervisor at Chubb was an attorney herself. She's a claim rep and she really liked me a lot or likes me a lot. So she, she helped pull some strings for me to get approved to represent this law firm. Now there was another like much larger law firm, a blue blood law firm who couldn't get approved by the insurance company, but yet I did. So, you know, it, it's one of those things. And cause they weren't paneled, but because I knew I did this prior work, you know, against the state involving this not-for-profit and I was successful, you know, they were able to pull strings for me. And then because I was approved to represent this law firm on another case involving a, a, an India-based company with a headquarters here in northern suburbs, I was able to get approved to represent them against a competitor of mine, actually. It was, it was really bizarre. A management side guy went, for whatever reason, decided to go represent this employee to try to shake us down for three quarters of a million dollars. So... By the way, he did send me, they sent me a 20, a, a draft lawsuit, 26 page draft lawsuit, where they miscited the name of one of the laws they were claiming <laughs> under. So after I saw that, I'm like, I don't know about this. I'm like, I, we never responded. Actually, we never responded. We just waited out the statute of limitations. Wow. I, I was going to say that's a good peek behind the curtain. So full, full story, don't, don't do that. Are you going to get ignored by the other side? Yeah, it was pretty bizarre. The guy called, he's an experienced attorney and he calls me and he's trying to like, you know, 
sweet talk to like explain this stuff, the case to me. I'm like thinking to myself, I, you know, none of this really sounds right. I'm like, and he's like, well, I'll send you the lawsuit. I'm like, fine, send me the lawsuit. And he sends me the lawsuit and then cites the law. And, and I'm like, you know, and he keeps calling me. And I'm just like, uh, we have no interest in making a counter offer. He actually called our clients, my client's clients. So my client's clients, they're in tech, high tech. And they actually called because some of my clients' clients are like 800-pound gorillas. And so they called the, um, their, literally they called Silicon Valley to their, their headquarter offices to talk with their attorneys there to tell them that, you know, to try to play me off as a loser and then, you know, go with me, I'm the winner and I'll save you guys money if you settle with us. And so I talked with their general counsel or their labor counsel. And I'm like, you know, none of this jives with me. Like, if you're just comfortable, and I said it to him like the way I'm explaining to you now, if you're comfortable just talking to me and, and comfortable letting me handle this, I'm like, I, I can tell you, I don't think they're gonna do anything. And that was it. Well, it's also one of my favorite litigation strategies, just to ghost. I just think it's pretty effective sometimes. Yeah, I, you know, I, I once had another on the other side do that to me, a plaintiff's attorney for his client, and he comes back a year later, literally a year later, 13 months later, and says, you know, if your offer's still open, we'll to settle, we'll accept it. Because I made no <laughs> offer. I'm like, no, it's not open. I'm like, you guys gave away everything just by sitting on this for 13 months. I'm like, why should we settle now? I'm like, if you're gonna make a claim, go ahead and claim it because I'm 99% sure I'll win it anyway. So in circumstances where you're not approved on the panel, are you still then working with the insurance law firm as basically? No. Okay. No, because they're not acting as outside GC at that point. Yeah. And I won't work with them. I don't think I'll work with them either because I've had, I've, I've come in as like second or third counsel on matters before, you know, like after some turnover and it's very difficult, I think, to come in second or third on a case and, and try to like, you know, pick it up and all that. If you want to read something, actually, here's a great story to read. It's on the front page of the, I think, I think it was on the front page of the Tribune, all about R. Kelly, how he's changed attorneys at Jennifer Bonjean. And you can read about how the judge was talking about Jean about getting up to speed. Because the judge said to her, it's like, because she's got a lot of respect, I think, by the judiciary, even after that spat with the state judge a couple of weeks ago. But you know, so the judge said to her, it's like, look, I'll get you up to speed on this. We'll, you know, I'll work with you on this. So I think, you know, people are pretty cooperative for the most part. And I just don't like the idea of, though, of taking over and, and you know, sitting, sitting over the back or supervising somebody. I don't like being micromanaged myself, you know, sometimes. So, yeah, it's, and I think that's why I'm a solo practitioner, too. Well, I, I think I think it's personality. So. I think that's hard for everybody. I mean, I, my experience, at least, has been whenever you're the second or third lawyer on a case, there's probably a reason why the original attorney isn't there anymore. I, on both sides, quite frankly, I, I found that to be the case. Once I had a really bizarre incident in federal court, this is a few years ago, where I was third attorney brought in on a class action wage and hour dispute in federal court. And the first attorney handling was a partner of a small firm. And I, I don't know what kind of problems he had with the client or just, well, I know what kind of problems he had, but he had problems with the client and he was having problems getting information and assimilating information. And then he was also had problems with opposing counsel. And so he was dropped or they mutually dropped each other. So second counsel comes in to take over, but he's more of a generalist in law and business law, not a labor and employment attorney. He doesn't really understand federal class action work and wage an hour. He ended up getting sanctioned by the magistrate judge because the other attorney was kind of obnoxious and, 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 you know, 
he convinced the judge that the, the second counsel was well walking discovery and like just creating delays for no good reason. So he got, I think, I think he was sanctioned for five grand. So then he brings me in through an, through another attorney who referred him to me, actually the same attorney who referred me to brought me into his law firm to represent his law firm and that sexual harassment matter. But anyway, we get in the, you know, I was dealing with, you know, I knowing that this guy was sanctioned, my predecessor was sanctioned. I'm in court one day on this matter in front of the judge, the magistrate for my first time alone without the other attorney. And I, the other, the opposing counsel was really obnoxious. And I said to the judge, I'm, I've never done this before, but I said, your honor, I'm like, this guy's the rudest, most obnoxious guy I've ever dealt with. And it worked. I mean, it got the, the attorney to stand down, but ironically, the first attorney handling that case was actually in the gallery when I did that. And it was really, str- and because he was in, on a motion wow. call, but preceding my motion, our, I mean, preceding our status. And I'm walking back. I'm like, he's walking back and I'm sitting at the desk in front of, you know, the judge in front of, you know, in front of court. I'm like, Hey man, I'm like, I'm the third attorney brought in on this case. I'm like, you were the first guy. I'm like, I want to call you after this. Cause I want to talk to you about some of this stuff. And the second attorney, I mean, the opposing counsel then was like, he stood down. I mean, after that remark, he tried to pull the same thing with the judge against me and, and the judge shut him down. And then it yeah. turns out a year later, I saved his butt in court when we were trying to prove up the, uh, trying to get the judge, it was Judge Guzman, trying to get his ultimate approval for the class action for the settlement. He didn't yeah, have the are- figures and I had to like jump in to, you know, to provide all the figures and everything. Yeah, I think it's super tough to jump into the middle of a case, especially when you're the third attorney. So I was looking at your website earlier, and I know one of the buckets you focus on is employee relations as well. Can yeah. you kind of just break down the difference, how that's different from traditional employment law, and also just the difference between micro and macro HR? Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's basically comes down to proactive or preventive or effective human resources management, effective leadership. Right. In the same way, I'm trying to persuade a client, you know, about the case and what's going on with the case and, and trying to lead them through it. I think HR management, effective HR management is the same thing. You have to be a leader for the company, a leader for employees. And it's the idea of taking responsibility, holding accountability for your actions. So it's not you're not running a sweatshop. You're not, you know, violating all these laws or intentionally violating all these laws. You know, you're not screwing over your employees. Ultimately, it's a lot cheaper. And this is the, the idea of going from A to Z is understanding how the preventive and transactional stuff factors in in terms of cost versus benefit against litigation. Because I think anybody litigates, especially in employment or business law, you sort of realize that litigation is like one of the worst ways to resolve disputes. It's just a yeah. really ineffective way of, of dispute resolution. Yeah. So this is basically risk mitigation. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I've seen the road that we could be headed. It's going to cost a lot from both a little literal costs and also business costs. Here's a way we can kind of prevent that. Here are the steps we need to take. Yeah. I mean, do you want to pay me twice as much to litigate as what, it, you know, is what it's going to cost to be born preventive? So, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and it's not, and it's a good way. It's a good entree for me, you know, especially, all right. So like, the counseling stuff is kind of easy, right? I mean, I'm not saying like, 
you know, not trying to blow it off or anything, but it, it's easy relative to like the litigation or like trying to persuade or, or get an insurance company to approve me. The same thing with transactional law, which is more contracts and all that, and maybe negotiations. Now, negotiations can be a little bit more complex than the, than the counseling or the proactive stuff, but the proactive preventive stuff is a good entree in terms of getting my foot in the door and then, you know, work, you know working your way up to the, you know, the bigger stuff with litigation. Oh, by the way, sorry, macro, micro HR, macro HR is the big picture stuff. What does HR mean to the company? What is our HR strategy? What do employees mean to us? How do we go about recruiting, hiring, um, placing, separating employees, micro HR, you know, how do we resolve John's pay dispute or how do we, you know, why isn't so-and-so, why isn't Gerald being properly paid overtime or something like that? You know, the uh, macro is almost business strategy. Just exactly. how do you effectively run a business, keep people? Exactly. Okay. That makes a lot yeah, of sense. Exactly. That's awesome that you do that. It doesn't give us much to do then, right? As long as people <laughs> like people do their jobs like, and listen to what you're telling them, then there's not much for us to do about it. It's good whip uh, service, right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I mean, let's face it, you know, it's easy to talk the talk, but when it comes to walking the walk, just you look, I mean, look what happened. Didn't they, the, C, the CEO of CNN recently, yeah, yeah, and right, he had yeah. to step down. Well, I, I think it, I have to say, I mean, I think a lot of the time, the reason the reason somebody like Ahmed or I ends up in a case is because they haven't listened to their lawyer or they didn't want to pay you to not you specifically, but they don't want to pay the metaphorical you to advise them in a situation or personal feelings get in the way of legal and business decisions. And it's these relationships get so hardened, right, especially the smaller and the more closely held the business where it's like decisions on firing, on pay, on everything else become personal and they stop being about what the law requires. Whereas if they're asking you or they're letting you kind of guide them, maybe there's not much for someone like Ahmed or myself to do about it. Well, that's the ideal, obviously, you know, the the main impetus behind proactive or preventive HR. But yeah, we know it just doesn't happen like that. Well, I really also just appreciate your pragmatic approach because I think there are too many attorneys that their thought process is if, if we stop the problem from happening, how am I going to, you know, make money or get into business, et cetera. And your thought is let's just stop the problem. That's better. for yeah, the client. I get, you know, it's the same thing. Like when we, I talk with other clients about outsourcing HR. So let's, I might have a client who I think a professional employer organization might be more suitable for them. So they could like co-lease uh, their employees. So they don't have as much liability or exposure, but then that means I probably won't be their attorney anymore. But from a cost versus benefit standpoint, I mean, fine, you might like me, but you know, every client says, you know, Chuck, I'd rather pay you the money than to give it to my employee or their attorneys. But when push comes to shove and it's like, I got to pay Chuck, you know, $15,000 versus $5,000 to the employee and his attorney, I'm like, you know, it's a no brainer. So, right. you know, let's cut the lip service out. I'm, I'm glad you like me so much, but you know, what's going to save you the most money and get you out of this dispute the, the quickest or, you know, what's going to minimize your exposure or liability. You know, sometimes it could be like a professional poor organization or a third party administrator to outsource it. When in, in theory, that's what builds the trust in because you're doing stuff that's not in your self-interest, but what's in the client's self-interest. Yeah, how exactly. So tell us then a little bit about your labor practice. I think that's the other bucket that you kind of have that's a little bit unique. And we, we've had one guest talk about kind of the labor set of employment and labor, but I think yours is going to be a little bit more of an interesting perspective too. So uh, yeah, it's unions. So union relations, it could be union busting. It could be unions might hire me to merge 
or t- or take over other unions or bust up other unions to merge with them, uh, you know, separation of bargaining units, that type of thing, union negotiation. Sometimes it's even helping to bring a, a different sort of, to help bring a union in and help to ease the transition into a union environment. I'm not, I used to work for a labor union, so I'm not like necessarily like 100% anti-union, even though there's people out there in the media have made me out to be that way. But I was called by some left-wing Chicago publication as being a slick, a slick union busting attorney. That's quote, quote, slick union busting attorney, unquote. So regarding one of my clients. So I mean, you know, it's unions a business itself, in and of itself. And it's a cutthroat business, unions. I never expected to be doing union business or at least much union business in 2022. Now it's half my practice. But if you would asked me in 2000, 2001, when I went off on my own, would I still be doing union business? I'd say, yeah, maybe 10% by now. But because of the pandemic, global warming or, or climate change, um, the fight for 15 and, and you know all the different civil rights movements going on right now, you know, it's like this perfect uh, storm of factors that are leading to a lot of labor trust and more labor action. And so it's, it's you know, part of what I do. I just, this week, this past week, I, f- I filed my first ever unfair labor practice charge at the NORB against the labor union. So can you stop for a second and tell yeah. us what that, for the audience, because I don't think a lot of our, uh, a lot of NILA lawyers tend to be Employment, employment lawyers more yeah, than myself labor included yeah this this is all yeah. i'm learning as we're talking I, so. I think once i've i've theoretically asserted an nlra claim but i don't know much about how the nlrb works can you talk about an unfair labor practice what that means and what it yeah. means to filed that claim it's sort of like a lawsuit at the agency level it's like filing an eeoc charge or some sort of department of human rights or department of labor charge so it's basically a charge filed with the administrative agency, which is National Labor Relations Board, and they administrate the National Labor Relations Act and all its amendments over time. So basically, it's the idea that employees are allowed to engage in what's called concerted activities, meaning any activity that benefits or or any activity that involves one or more employees, not or, or two or more employees, is basically concerted activity, or, and it's, it involves wages, hours, and conditions of employment. So anything involving those, and that's governed by the NORA, which is administered by the National Labor Relations Board, the NRB. And then they have like investigators and a weak department that goes out and investigates and or prosecutes and some kind, sometimes negotiates settlements to these disputes. They also oversee union elections and decertifications, like the actual decertification process, which is actually the vote to get rid of a union or they decertify the union, things like that. And the National Labor Relations Board's at the federal level. There's also state equivalents. So like in Illinois, you have the Illinois Local Labor Relations Board, the Illinois Educational Labor Relations Board. On a federal level, there's also the Railway Labor Relations Board, which deals rail, rail and air transport. So, you know. So the what is an unfair labor practices claim then? Like, what does that look like in practice that leads you to file a charge or a complaint? So it's something like the uh, employer... Generally, they're against employers. So the employer refuses to bargain with us or the employer refuses to bargain and negotiate in good faith with us over wages, over collective bargaining agreement, over it could be conditions of work, like safety, something like that. So generally, that's like usually at at the most basic types. Or it could be something like what I'm doing, which is claiming that a labor union itself 
is try to coerce its members into violating the law, going on intermittent strikes or falsifying, you know, falsifying documents, medical documents. So I guess just stepping back in terms of your labor work, what what do you enjoy about it and what do you find to be more challenging about that area of your practice? Well, I got into this field because I like the edginess of it, disputes and all that. I was, I was going to go into consulting. I have a master of arts in industrial organizational psychology. I was going to go into consulting, organizational behavior, HR or something, but I found that to be too soft and touchy-feely. And I get, that's why I went to law school, got my law degree and specialized in labor and employment law. I like dealing with disputes. I like workplace psychology. I have a ba- actually, I have a background, too, in psychology and social work and counseling, and I sort of like, which is why I like the HR counseling stuff and why I think that's so much more effective than litigation. But, you know, but the litigation is more lucrative and, and, and it's kind of fun. I actually I, I enjoy litigation. So even though it's a terrible way to resolve disputes, it's, yeah. it's and I like this stuff. I, I like doing I, I like business. I like seeing why people go into I, I like understanding like vocational issues, why people go into one field versus another, what they like about their jobs, how you can make how they can perform better at their jobs. I tend to believe that work is like the central focus when the central focus is our economy. Um, I'm not trying to put down religion or anything like that, but I think work is like probably the most one of the most important things in U.S. society or Western civilization in, in general. And one of my favorite things about practicing employment law is you get to learn about all different industries. I mean, yeah. All of what we do is industry agnostic. You can have employment law violations in any sector of the economy. And so that part is super cool. I love going out. One of the bad things about the pandemic is that I actually love going out to visit my clients and see see their places of work. Check out, like if it's a manufacturing facility, check out their equipment and all that. I've gone to like some chemical, like one of my clients as an industrial chemical manufacturer, I was you know on their site and everything. So, I mean, I, I've taken like virtual tours where my client would show me around, like, you know, like walking their computer around. But, you know, that's not the same thing as visiting it. I did only once in my career have I ever had anything like that. And it was a weird kind of bizarre workers comp retaliation case where the company crazily enough ended up reinstating the guy as part of the settlement, which the opponent and I said will never happen again in either of our careers, (laughs) just because, you know, on the defense side, right? Like once somebody's gotten an attorney, it's sort of awkward to bring them back. It's like throwing a sheep to the wolves, too. Yeah. This situation had not escalated, so it was lucky. No one had filed a lawsuit. There'd been a letter sent, but it was, I think, honestly, a miscommunication. And the guy had gotten injured. He'd stuck his foot on a machine that he shouldn't have, I think, gotten hurt and got nervous about maybe they wanted an incident report. And as it turned out, I think the reason the guy got let go was because they were just so nervous about how he'd gotten hurt. They really, really wanted to investigate and figure out what had happened. And once they knew, they brought them back. They were fine to do it. It was, I mean, it was a non-union shop, obviously, but, but that was cool. That was the only time in my career I ever got to do that. Like go out, see how the things work, see them kind of in action, see them doing a safety test. So I'm a little jealousy in that way. That's a cool thing you get to, you get to see with. Unfortunately, you know, because some of my practice now is international to a multi-state. So it's not like, and the way things have worked during the pandemic, it's not like you can, you know, they can afford to fly me around or, or transport me around or, you know, it, it's not as cost effective anymore to do that. But, you know, it's, it's nice, like for local businesses to be able to go out and visit and check out, you know, they actually get a more of a sort of a, a ground floor feel about what's going on, especially like with the union jobs, too, because actually like one of my union clients is in an industry where I used to work when I was in high school. 
And so now I'm dealing with like older adults who are doing like what I did in high school and, you know, and representing their negotiating with dealing with their union on stuff. So it's kind of weird. I mean, you know, it's an interesting dynamic because I was a member of a union when I did that same work in high school too. I just don't remember that union, that, that type of union ever being as obnoxious as the union I'm dealing with now. So Chuck switch side, Chuck switch sides. He's a scab now. <laughs> I used to be a union attorney. <laughs> so how else has the pandemic kind of impacted your work? Has it made it easier to do work with international companies because you can do it remotely or? Yeah, I think so. Okay. It's, that's, but that's a general trend with, a trend with technology anyway. I mean, what used to take like three or four hours of research now takes like an hour, you know, it, it's just the way the stuff works with the internet and, and technology anyway. So yeah, it's, it, it's, I, I don't meet. I would say right now that 75% of my clients I've not met face to face now. Yeah. E- even like when they when, when they engage me, like my new, one of my newest clients is a is a company based out of California that I'm representing one of their facilities here in the Chicago area and we never met face to face. I don't know anything about these guys for the most part other than, than other than the research I've done. My number might actually even be higher at this point. Yeah. It's kind of, it's a weird, it's a sort of a weird thing. Like, cause as an attorney, you feel like, you know, and I talk a lot about leadership and management. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, in order, in order to be an effective leader or manager, don't you have to be like in person? No, I get um, that completely. All right. Well, we, we know you don't see this coming. So get a moment. <laughs> so we like to end our episodes with something positive, some shout out of the week, something you want to promote. It can be a book, a person, just something to end on a high note, especially since we were just talking about a pandemic. So we've had people shout out their pets, their, their children, TV shows. So what is your shout teams, out? Of the whatever. Week? Yeah. Well, actually, well, this, here's something like professional, like, cause you're talking about the pandemic. I've been interviewed a lot about the pandemic over the last year, year and a half. So I've been on South Korean television three times now, like on a panel discussion with like talking head. I've been like a talking head on South Korean news TV and then other news and, you know, audio publications and all that. So it's like, I've become sort of like an expert on workplace pandemic issues yet. Like I realized that I know so little about it. You know, I'm constantly amazed at like, at like the amount of ignorance I feel I have about Still, because we're engaged, you know, we're, we're, we don't even know if we're like through the end of this yet. We, you know, when you talk about going from A to Z, we don't know where we are in terms of the uh, continuum. Are we still in the, are we in the middle or toward the end or what? So it's kind of a weird thing, you know, to be recognized as like, kind of like a workplace expert on the pandemic issue, but yet to also at the same time, know so little about this stuff you know, about the pandemic and, and, you know, how is this going to affect the workplace and all? Because this is one of the reasons why unionization and and all these uh, associated activities in the workplace is happening right now, all this trust and discord. So it's just, it's such an unusual, and it's really an unusual and exciting time. Yeah. Lori Goldstein talked about this on one of our episodes too, about how we're just trying to figure this out on the fly. There's no playbook on employment laws during a pandemic and how do you put together a COVID policy? Yeah. 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 It's just, it's such a, I mean, we're going to look back on this, you know, I have a feeling I, I told this to my students at Loyola. I'm like, you always hear about like older generations talking about, Oh, we had to walk six miles every day in the snow uphill to get to school. You know, we went through the great depression. We went through war too. We were in the Vietnam war. Well, this is one of those things. I mean, yeah. this, what we're going through right now is one of those like, you know, a, a macro sea changing, you know, and world, you know, species impacting things. 
One of many, I would say. So Chuck, anything you want to plug with the knowledge this may come out in the next couple of weeks? Well, we, we have our webinar coming up, Max. We do, um, although I think this will come up after that. But but they're oh, month, but they're monthly, so if it won't be February, it'll be the March one. I guess if you want to find out more about me, check out my YouTube channel, and you can see my video interviews. So I plug that. I, I like to always plug my media stuff. And Chuck does Chuck does a webinar for Financial Poise uh, that he moderates every month. That's quite good. Yeah, Max is one of our panelists. So <laughs> so so done, is do, one of I've our been old doing guests. This for like ten years now. Which, is you, that mean, I'm not one of your, you mean I'm not one of your first <laughs> guests? I'm hurt, Chuck. I'm hurt that you had people there before me. Uh, well, no, no, actually, you were actually you were one of the first people I chose when I became a moderator. I was a panelist before. I'm just giving you a hard time. Yeah, I know. But, uh, yeah, no, we had Helen on and Gary Savine, who's another Neela member who we think highly of. So both of them are on the panel, yeah. Yeah. All three, yeah. It's fun. Well, it, they're good and they're very informative. Um, Chuck's got good war stories and we're going to do a second episode with him that'll come out later for folks. So if you enjoyed this one, keep that in mind. But we want to thank Chuck Krugel for joining us today and for sharing, for, his ex- for sharing his expertise, for giving us this a different angle on, on management side work and labor and, and all that good stuff. So thank you, Chuck. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Meet them. And Max, thanks. Yeah, please subscribe and share. It's like a tongue twister. I meet a Max. <laughs> <laughs> Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.